0: Good morning, church family. I pray that you are all well, as it is wonderful to see all of you here this morning on what is the first Sunday in the month of November, and what is our fourth Sunday, working our way through chapter 10 in the Gospel of Mark. As this morning, we will be looking specifically at Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, or when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ foretells about his death and resurrection for a third-time church, which comes to us in Mark chapter 10, following Jesus Christ initially offering some teachings on the subject matter of divorce. since Some Pharisees or some religious leaders of the day asked Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 10, verse 2, for is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? To which Jesus Christ, after acknowledging that God did indeed make a concession for divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24, due to his people's hardness of heart. Jesus Christ, then, as we go on to see in verses 6 through 9, makes clear that our God's ultimate plan for marriage, ever since the very beginning of creation, was for a man to leave his father and mother and to hold fast to his wife, and that the two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, and that our God's ideal and standard and desire for his people within the covenant of marriage always has been and always will continue to be for their marriage to be that of a permanent relationship. Which Jesus Christ then, after some people brought their children to Jesus Christ, and after his disciples began to rebuke them, Jesus Christ, for he then said to them in verses 14 and 15, let the children come to me, for do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In essence, that the kingdom of God is only for those church who humbly and too meekly receive the gift of the kingdom like that Of a lowly child, and to completely and to wholeheartedly depend on God and God alone in order to be saved. Which finally then takes us to the story of the rich young ruler who came up to Jesus Christ and asked him in verse 17, Good teacher, for what must I do to inherit eternal life? To which Jesus Christ eventually then said back to the rich young ruler in verse 21, after hearing, in essence, that he believed that he could inherit eternal life based on his own good works, that he, the rich young ruler, then needed to sell all that he had and to give to the poor and come and follow Jesus, which the rich young ruler then simply could not do. Since he had so many great possessions, church, and loved his great possessions church, and was ultimately then being ruled by his great possessions church here as well. To which Jesus Christ then, after being asked by his disciples in verse 26 about who then could ultimately be saved, Jesus Christ, he responded back to his disciples in verse 27 by saying, "'With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible for God.'" And that it is utterly impossible, church, for a rich man or a poor man, a smart man or a dull man, a white man or a black man, a wicked man, or even that of a religious man, to be saved and to gain entrance into the kingdom of God outside of complete and utter dependence on the grace of God since the gift of eternal life comes only to those church who are willing to die to self, to lose their lives, and to place their faith in Christ alone, since absolutely no one church can serve two masters and still become part of the kingdom of God forever. Which takes us now to our thesis statement this morning, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. See what kind of love Jesus Christ has for you, Christian. And that he was willing to be mocked, spit on, flogged, and to die for you, all so that you could be forgiven of your sins and become part of the kingdom of God forever. Again, our thesis statement this morning, church, is this. See what kind of love Jesus Christ has for you, Christian. And that he was willing to be mocked, spit on, flogged and to die for you, all so that you could be forgiven of your sins and become part of the kingdom of God forever. And us at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up this morning to Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. And if you are joining us today and do not have or do not own a Bible, then please feel free to grab and even to keep one of our church Bibles, which are all located in the chairs in front of you as our gift to you this morning. And to also then open that brand new Bible of yours up to page 846 and to join us as we as a church family hear the word of God together this morning. For again, we are in Mark chapter 10 this morning, church, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 32 through 34, where John Mark The author of the Gospel of Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for each one of the dear ones here this morning. Lord, I know some of us have had long weeks, difficult weeks, stressful weeks, and yet we come together after these long, stressful, difficult weeks into the house of the Lord on the Lord's day to hear the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners from their sins. Father, I pray that if anyone is struggling this morning, whether that be emotionally, physically, psychologically, Lord, that you build them up spiritually this morning. Father, I pray if if there is anyone here this morning who confesses the name of Jesus as the Christ and Lord of all, and yet they are not living for Jesus Christ at this time, Father, that this gospel-saturated sermon encourages them this morning and invigorates them this morning. Father, I pray that the sermon this morning, this gospel-focused and saturated sermon, edifies and builds up this wonderful flock, this flock that Jesus Christ poured his blood out for on the cross of Calvary in order to cleanse, to redeem, and to reconcile back to you, Father. Lord, I pray that you help me this morning to communicate your word to each one of these dear ones clearly, the best that I can, and so that you be glorified. Help my lisping and stammering tongue, I pray. But Father, let all of the preaching this morning, all of the praying, all of the singing, and as we come together at the Lord's table in a few minutes, let it all be a sacrifice, Father, that is glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, Christian, never be afraid to follow the example of Jesus Christ. And to walk faithfully in the ways of God, no matter what persecution might be waiting for you. Point number one Christian, never be afraid to follow the example of Jesus Christ, and to walk faithfully in the ways of God, no matter what persecution might be waiting for you. Verse 32, which reads And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. So as we open in verse 32, church, we see right off the bat that they, Jesus, and his disciples were once again on the road, and as I have mentioned, over And over and over again, and really ever since that of Mark chapter 9, verse 30, Jesus and his disciples were ultimately at this time heading to that of Jerusalem, or to the place where he, Jesus Christ, would ultimately be handed over to be crucified. However, before we move on here in the text this morning, church, it is important for us all to realize here, contextually speaking, that Jesus Christ and his disciples at this time were traveling to that of Jerusalem right before the Passover festival. And thus because of that, as one commentator explains, Jesus Christ and his disciples then would have likely been part of a much larger body of Jewish pilgrims here, who were also then at this time going up to Jerusalem for the Passover festival as well. However, in hearing that word up, here in verse 32, I realize that some of you might be sitting there this morning thinking, well, that can't be right, because wasn't Jesus Christ and his disciples at this time traveling to Jerusalem likely from that of Perea? And that wasn't Jesus Christ and his disciples at this time traveling south to Jerusalem and not that of north? And thus, did John Mark here in verse 32 actually make a mistake by saying that Jesus and his disciples were going up to Jerusalem? And of course, the answer to that question is absolutely not. And I say that because going up to Jerusalem was simply how the Jews referred to their travels to Jerusalem during this time. Since Jerusalem church was not only about 2,600 feet above sea level and thus forced travelers to make some pretty intense inclines on their way up to Jerusalem, but also because Jerusalem church was the holy city of the Jews as well. And thus because of that, the Jews then made it their practice or their standard to regularly say that they were traveling up to Jerusalem and not that of down. Nevertheless, as we go on to see in verse 32, Jesus Christ then, for he was walking ahead of them. And keep in mind, dear church, that Jerusalem was the place where pain awaited Jesus Christ and where torment awaited Jesus Christ, and where rejection and beatings and floggings and the reality of being handed over to be crucified awaited Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus Christ, for he was not making his way slowly to Jerusalem here, nor was he making his way lackadaisically to Jerusalem here, nor even was he making his way lethargically or reluctantly or leisurely to that of Jerusalem here. But instead, as we see in verse 32, Jesus Christ, he was walking ahead of them and was making his way ardently and diligently and resolutely to Jerusalem here. So much so that Jesus' own disciples, verse 32, were amazed at Jesus Christ here. Likely because, as Eckerd Schnebel explains, Jesus Christ was walking so purposefully ahead of them on the road to Jerusalem, despite the fact that he had already told them about his forthcoming rejection and suffering and death by the elders and the chief priest, which seemingly indicated, church, that this suffering was going to take place in that of Jerusalem. And not only that, but as we go on to see in verse 32, all the other people, church, who were also following Jesus Christ at this time, for they, verse 32, were afraid. Again, as Schnebel explains, likely because of the impending confrontation between Jesus Christ and that of the political and religious leaders in Jerusalem as well. Nevertheless, despite all the amazement and the astonishment from Jesus Christ here, and all the fear and the Trepidation from the rest of the crowd following Jesus Christ here. Jesus Christ, despite knowing exactly what was waiting for him in Jerusalem here, for he still set his face like a flint and willingly traveled to that of Jerusalem here, in order to fulfill all that was written about him in the Pentateuch, by the prophets, and in the Psalms, Luke twenty-four forty-four, and in order not to do his own will here, church, but instead the will of the one who sent him, John six thirty-eight. And thus, as the Scottish Baptist minister, Alexander McLaren wrote, for there is nothing to be done in life without an uncompromising will. For to be weak is to be miserable in doing or in suffering. And our Master and Savior Jesus Christ has set before us the example of this, that unless they're run through a man's life, the kind of iron framework of a steeple on which graceful fancies are strung in stone, or unless they're run through a man's life the rigid bar of an iron purpose that absolutely nothing can bend, the life will be for naught and the man will be a failure. And thus Jesus Christ is the example of heroic endurance and reads to us the lesson, resist and persist whatever stands between us and our goal. For listen to that last line again, church. For Jesus Christ is the example of heroic endurance and reads for us the lesson, resist and persist whatever stands between us and our goal. And I just want to pause here for a second, church, and lovingly encourage us all here this morning that if it is our goal then, brother Christian, sister Christian, to faithfully follow the ways of Jesus Christ, and to obediently keep the commandments of Jesus Christ, and to submit ourselves freely to all the teachings of Jesus Christ in order to grow and to grow and to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ, then when you have the choice before you, Christian, to either follow the ways of Jesus Christ or to follow after the ways of this world, or to either seek ye first the kingdom of God or to seek ye first the desires of the flesh, or to either walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, or to walk in the manner of the evil one himself, quite simply then, let me lovingly just encourage you to be faithful, and to be steadfast, and unshakable, and unwavering, and follow the perfect example of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as you do whatever you have to do, Christian, in order to faithfully, follow the will of your God, even if it leads to suffering, since the ways of Jesus Christ are always perfect, Christian, and the lessons of Jesus Christ, they are always for our good. Which brings us to point number two, which is this. The suffering servant, Jesus Christ, was willing to serve others to the point of being mocked, spit on, flogged, and even to the point of death. The suffering servant, Jesus Christ, was willing to serve others to the point of being mocked, spit on, flogged, and even to the point of death. Verses 32 through 34. Which reads, And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them, So Jesus Christ, as we see here in verse 32, for he then takes his 12 disciples aside and for a third time church tells them about his forthcoming death and resurrection by saying initially to them in verse 33, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priest and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And that's insane here, church, that in Jerusalem, the Son of Man, a.k.a. the one who is truly man, Psalm chapter 8, and who is also from heaven, Daniel chapter 7, who dominion and glory and a kingdom has been given to, that he, this Son of Man, this Messiah, this Jesus Christ, verse 33, will be delivered over to the chief priest and to that of the scribes the chief priests being the male members of the priestly families, including that of the high priest Caiaphas, and the scribes being the experts of the Mosaic law, both of which being part of the Sanhedrin here, church, or that of the Jewish high court. And that they, verse 33, would condemn Jesus Christ to death. However, being that these Jewish authorities at this time did not have the authority under Roman rule to actually carry out the death and execution of Jesus Christ. These Jewish authorities, then, as we go on to see in verse 33, would eventually then deliver Jesus Christ over to the Gentiles or over to the Roman officials who oversaw Judea at this time, who would ultimately then, church, as we see in verse 34, mock Jesus Christ, which they did when they put a crown of thorns on his head and yelled at him, All hail, King of the Jews. And spit on Jesus Christ, which they did while also striking his head with a reed. And flogged Jesus Christ, which they did with a lead-tipped whip. And then, of course, killed Jesus Christ, which they did when they crucified him on a cross at Calvary, also that three days later, verse 34, he, Jesus Christ, could be raised from the dead. Nevertheless, being that Jesus' predictions here, church, about his own death and resurrection were so precise and were so accurate and were so exact and specific and spot on, many skeptics then of Jesus Christ believe that all these predictions here by Jesus Christ were not actually the words of Jesus Christ, but instead, as R.C. Sproul points out, were just falsely attributed to Jesus Christ after his death and resurrection took place, which we all know, church, is absolutely false. And I say that because for not only did Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God know all things in love and was himself omniscient, but also because Jesus Christ, knew the Old Testament scriptures inside and out, and all that they had already predicted, church, about the Messiah, Jesus Christ as well. In that he, Jesus Christ, knew, church, from Psalm chapter 22, that he, the Messiah, would be mocked. And that he, Jesus Christ, knew, church, from Isaiah chapter 50, that he, the Messiah, would be spit on and struck. And he, Jesus Christ, most assuredly knew, church, from Isaiah chapter 53, that he, the Messiah, would ultimately be rejected and pierced and killed and crushed. And yet, despite knowing perfectly the fate of the Messiah, as predicted by all the prophets of old, he, Jesus Christ, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, for he still willingly then endured the cross and bore our sins in his body, church, also, that we as the children of God could be healed and be reconciled back to our God forever. For it is written that if you were to look at Rembrandt's work, The Three Crosses, that your attention would likely be drawn first to the center cross on which Jesus Christ died. And then it would be natural for you to look at the crowd gathered all around the foot of the cross, where you'd likely notice the various facial expressions and actions of the people involved in the awful crime of actually crucifying Jesus Christ. And then finally, your eyes might also then drift to the edge of the piece and catch the sight of another figure who was almost hidden in the shadows, who some art critics believe is a representation of Rembrandt himself. Recognize that by his sins he also helped nail Jesus to that cross as well. Church, Jesus Christ suffered for our sins once for all time, the righteous for the unrighteous, and he died for our sins also that he must, might, might bring us back to our God forever and that he loved us so much, Christian, that he willingly then was mocked for us, bit on for us, flogged for us, pierced for us, crucified for us, and was killed on a cross at Calvary for us, all so that we could be forgiven of our sins, given the gift of eternal life, and become part of the kingdom of God forever, and thus be in awe of the glorious suffering servant, Jesus Christ this morning, church, the one who willingly bore your sins, was nailed to a tree, and who laid down his life, for you, also that you, Christian, could live eternally through Him. And thus, as we begin to close this morning, church, I want to do so with the non Christian who was here first. And to share with you at this time, non Christian, what exactly Jesus Christ did in order to save sinners from their sins and to be able to offer them the gift of eternal life. And that I want to share with you at this time, non-Christian, the gospel, or the good news that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, humbled himself by coming into this world as truly God and as truly man and initially living for us the life that we could never live. And that he, Jesus Christ, lived a sinless and righteous and holy life while he lived and dwelt among us. And thus, because of that, fulfilled then, non-Christian, the very law of God in its entirety, perfectly and completely, all for the very children of God. However, being that the wage of our sin, non-Christian, or the cost of our sin, non-Christian, is that of death, simply keeping the law of God all for the very children of God, for that in and of itself was not enough to save sinners from their sins. And thus because of that, Jesus Christ, that non-Christian, willingly paid that price for our sins by being crucified and killed and crushed on a cross at Calvary in our place and as our very substitute even though he himself Never sinned, which appeased then, non Christian, the wrath of our holy God all toward his sinful children. And thus, because Jesus Christ, then, non Christian, this Sinless son of God, appease then the wrath of a holy God all toward the very children of God. Three days later then, Jesus Christ, for he didn't stay dead or buried in some grave, but instead three days later, he, Jesus Christ, he rose from the grave and he defeated sin and destroyed eternal death once and for all and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus let today be the day, non-Christian, that you turn from your sin. For let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin and can clothe you then in his righteousness, in his perfect life and reconcile you back to God forever. For let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And today will be the day that you will be forgiven of your sin and given the gift, non-Christian, of eternal life. And to the Christian who is here today, first we close this morning I'd like to do so by considering at this time, for what then should our response be now, brother Christian, sister Christian, to the gospel of Jesus Christ? For what then should our response be right now, brother Christian, sister Christian, to the gospel of Jesus Christ? To which I think J.C. Ryle answers that question so well when he writes, for we must not only accept the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as our Redeemer and as our Advocate, but we must also then gladly give ourselves and all that we have to the service of Jesus Christ as well. Since surely, if Jesus Christ cheerfully died for us, then it is not too small a thing to require Christians to then faithfully live for him. And thus, in light of that, brother Christian, sister Christian, for let me lovingly then ask each and every one of you here this morning, for who then, or for what then, Christian, do you live for? And that when you wake up, Christian, for do you live to get on your phone, or do you live for Jesus Christ? Or when you get in your car in the morning, Christian, for do you live to listen to all your political idols on the radio? Or do you live for Jesus Christ? Or when you get to work, Christian, for do you live to increase your paycheck day by day? Or do you live for Jesus Christ? Or even when you get home from work in the evening, Christian, for do you live to relax and for your me time and to only gratify yourself? Or do you live for Jesus Christ? And that if someone were to take a good long look at your life, Christian from the time you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed, for could they say definitively and conclusively and without a shadow of a doubt that you are indeed living for Jesus Christ, or would they say instead that you are living for your phone, Christian, or that you are living for your job, Christian, or that you are living for your paycheck, your favorite football team, your favorite hobby, or all those social media accounts of yours, Christian, because if that is any of you here this morning, live... For this world instead of Jesus Christ, then quite frankly then, Christian, you've got to take yourself back to your first love and to remind yourself of the sweetness of the gospel and that God showed his love for you, Christian, and that while you were still a sinner, Jesus Christ he died for you, and to let that gospel message then, Christian, encourage you and embolden you and invigorate you to fearlessly then forsake the ways of this world and to live steadfastly then for the sake of Jesus Christ, no matter what persecution may come your way. Since you have a Messiah, Christian, who was willingly mocked for you, bit on for you flogged for you beaten for you pierced for you and who laid down his own life on a cross at Calvary for you also that you could be forgiven of your sins given the gift of eternal life and be reconciled back to your god forever and thus because of that resolutely then christian live only for the one who willingly gave up his life for you also that you christian could live Eternally through him. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body, no matter what heavy burdens we might be facing this morning, whether they be stresses from work or children who are sick, hardships in parenting or broken down cars, friends who are now acting like enemies or simply not having enough money to pay the bills, that you strengthen us this morning, Lord, spiritually. And the fact that your son, Jesus Christ, came into this world to save sinners from their sins and to give those who come to faith in him the gift of eternal life. And that we realize, then, that because of our faith in Jesus Christ, that we absolutely, then, have nothing that we need to fear. And thus, because of that, let us always, then, Father, be willing to live for your Son, Jesus Christ, no matter what we are going through at this present time, and no matter what we may be called to face in the future here as well. Since we know that as your children, God, that to live is Christ, and that to die is nothing but gain. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, Lord, bring us back to the sweetness of the gospel. Help us to understand this morning, like never before, our first love, the God-man himself, Jesus Christ. For while we were still weak at the right time, Jesus Christ, he died for the ungodly. He died for my sins, for your sins, and for every Christian out there who believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord. Father, give us a softening of our heart this morning to be in awe of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That our Lord and Savior, despite knowing exactly what stood before him, willingly endured the cross and bore our sins in his body as he was nailed to a tree, all to pay for our sins, to appease and to satisfy the wrath of a holy God, and to reconcile sinful people back to a holy God. For what a God we have in Jesus Christ. Thus, in all that we do, as those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, let us live for this Savior now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.